Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. In today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Vivian James Rigney, and he is going to be talking to us about leadership, authenticity, communication, and of course, his experience climbing Mount Everest. A little bit about Vivian James Rigney before we start. He is the president and CEO of Inside Us LLC, an executive coaching consultancy operating throughout five continents. He has helped implement leadership development initiatives for some of the world's leading companies and their executive teams. The quest for personal success can often be a lonely journey. As an executive coach, Vivian becomes a trusted partner known for building strong rapport and asking tough, incisive questions with an uncanny ability to help people reveal the best versions of themselves. As a graduate of École des Ponts et Chaussées in Paris, he is a renowned speaker and expert on mindset and behavior whose talks and presentations have inspired audiences globally. As a native of Ireland, he has lived in the UK, Germany, South Africa, France, Finland, and currently resides in New York City. Naked at Knife Edge is his book, Vivian James Rigney's compelling and often harrowing true account of summiting Mount Everest offers a unique window into lessons on leadership and what it takes to succeed in any circumstance. I have read the book and I really believe you're going to love today's interview. A little bit about what I'm up to. As you know, I have a online course for the parents of young adults. What do we do now? And that's on sale right now on Udemy.com. The link is in the show notes. And if you are a therapist who is looking into getting trained in EMDR therapy, I highly recommend EMDR Training Solutions. You can save $100 on your first course by using the code INTENTIONAL at checkout. The link is in the show notes. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcoming to the podcast, Vivian James Rigney. Welcome to The Intentional Clinician. Hi, Paul. Great to see you. Great to chat. Thanks. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And I've just finished reading your new book, Naked at Knife Edge, Whatever Has Taught Me About Leadership and the Power of Vulnerability. And I have to tell you, I did read this book in one day and it was fantastic and I was scared and uh, I learned a lot. So I appreciate uh, you writing this book, but I would love to ask you questions about the book and anything you would like to talk about with your, uh, the business world as well. Sure. My pleasure. So a little bit about you. We know from the bio that you're an executive coach and leadership, um, is your profession essentially. And, um, I guess one of the things I want to know is, you know, you talk about ego and how this sort of situation helped you overcome parts of the ego. Um, and since we're in psychology, I'm in psychology. Uh, I don't know. I just wanted to know a little bit about that. You talked about, uh, the ego, what we want to believe about ourselves and the persona, what we want others to believe about us, two core pillars of education and conditioning quickly become undone, revealing our true inner selves. So you were kind of talking about that when you, as a result of, of climbing. Right. Correct. Um, So my my day job is I work with senior executives and business leaders, and I help them to be more emotionally intelligent. And to be more emotionally intelligent, you have to have that awareness of yourself. So this is a starting point. And the two buckets you rightly highlighted there, the one, the ego, people tend to fall into two categories. We could simplify things down to that, just kind of two things. Uh, The first one is where people use I and me a lot. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm good at this. I'm going to do that. I've achieved this. So a lot of I, I, me, me, and that can be positive, right? It gets us out of bed in the morning, gives us focus. You know, I came to America, I had to figure out that, that originally from Ireland, that I would, I would build my American dream. So that's healthy. Um, on the other side of the coin, you may have people where, where somebody is, is concerned what other people think of them. Um, now that in a healthy way there, they are aware of what other people think and then they react accordingly and they understand what building rapport is about. The feature of life is that we, we rarely are in the middle of the fairway. Most times we, we can kind of land in one way or the other, particularly under stress. And that's where we can be overly concerned with what other people think. Um, and that could be around a fear of failure. 
maybe around a fear of um, wanting others to like us and being overly concerned when we think others don't like us or there's something there and we start to overthink. Go back to the ego side, it's where it's a little too much of the I in the me show. So I, 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 people like the hearing sound of their own voice and they, they use that to drive themselves, but they don't know when to stop. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And people, you know, in both of those cases, um, people who are watching those folks recognize something's not quite in balance, right? So somebody who's too much, talking too much about themselves, it's they're disconnected. They're in their own world. They're not engaged. They're not present. Or they're overly concerned with failure, overthinking everything, overanalyze everything, and trying could be constantly in, in the, you know, in, 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 to be perceived in a certain way. So both of those extremes are unhealthy. And I think a life where we can somehow find the middle ground, it's a better place to be. But we have to be, in ter- we have to be connected with ourselves in order to recognize that and also to come back and, and own that space. Excellent. What a good, great summary there. I, yeah, I see that a lot in psychology, but as, especially I think in the business world, I'm assuming you have people that have w- w- quite a great drive and success. And so they they use this tool of, you know, talking to people and uh, dri- self-driving themselves and success. And then they get so high up into the executive world that I could see where perhaps they're not sure how to have a balance with their other team members or figuring out how they want their business to actually behave. Is that something that you run into there? Correct. Correct. And look, the, the phrase lonely at the top is a an absolute reality for most of the people I work with. If you can think generally folks who get to the top or get toward the top and are, you know, have a good positive trajectory there, they've worked super hard, obviously. Uh, they've shown their application toward, toward their tasks. They've delivered, they execute well. But when you become a manager and a leader, the higher you go up, the more it's less about you doing and more about you getting other people to do. And it's less about giving instructions in the old style of management, you know, back decades ago, where you just give an order, bark out an order, and somebody expects to do something, and it's very binary. In the modern day and age, it's about influencing people. People don't want to be told things. Uh, People want to be heard. They want to be understood. So in today's leadership, there's an expectation that people are much more... Um, uh, understand subtleties. They are thoughtful about their messaging, and above all, they uh, they build a connection with people, a connection of empathy, of authenticity. That can be trans. That, that can involve obviously transparency. It can also involve being direct, being frank. No harm in that at all. But people expect leaders to be able to connect with them. Uh, in order f- to follow them. They need to be sold on the why. And if a leader is not able to explain the why and is just focused on the what, um, you know, that, that that can be a problem. Or conversely, they, they tell you, here's how you do something, but the person doesn't understand, well, what's our purpose? Why am I being asked to do this? It makes no sense at all. Um, and and that's, that's changing rapidly. Obviously, with generations now and, you know, uh, millennials and so forth, um, they want to understand the arc, right? Why am I doing something? What's the purpose of it? And what's your expectation in terms of an outcome? It's healthy, but it's a stretch for leaders. How do, how do, how do they have that repertoire, as it were, of tools to be effective with an audience uh, of people with different expectations? How do they read that? How do they, how do they measure it and understand how to communicate in an efficient way at scale? And that's the tricky thing. I would say that's quite tricky as people who have made their way possibly to the top might be from a different generation with a different cultural expectation. And also, I think, you know, the millennials have been exposed to the internet since they were little children. And so there's so much information there. And the importance, I think people are always looking for meaning. When when you see depression in people uh, in the psychology world, a lot of times, if it's not organically based, it's all about a lack of meaning. And so at work, you've got to have a sense of meaning, of purpose. And if your boss is acting, I don't know, to be cliche, kind of like the king of the castle and barking orders all the time, I can see people getting discouraged quite easily and not wanting to work for this person, even if the benefits are high. And so that can influence culture as well. So I appreciate uh, you talking about all this. I want to get a little bit into your backstory 
and then maybe we'll get into some more leadership uh, coaching talk here in a moment. Um, without spoiling the book, which I believe the audience will really like the book. Like I said, I read it in a day, but it did take me about four hours um, just because I was I was actually riveted and wanted to find out what happened. I figured you survived since uh, the book's published and all of that, but uh, I, you know, it was a close one. Uh, but a little backstory about uh, the climbing. Um, this is not your first mountain. So could you give us a little backstory about you know how you grew up and and why you uh, decided that you enjoyed climbing? Well, tell from the accent, originally from Dublin, Ireland, and uh, I used to be dragged up the mountains every Sunday after mass of, with my father, and he loved hiking and mountains. And I remember sitting in the church uh, as a little kid, praying for rain, because if, if it was rain after mass, my mother would say, no mountains today. And I got off scot-free. And now, now in Ireland, you get quite a bit of rain. We were on the East Coast, so it was, it was quite dry as well, certain days. So anyway, I got taken off. I didn't really enjoy it, didn't like it. Fast forward a couple of decades to, I was working in South Africa and uh, had a trip to Tanzania. I was there in South Africa for four years. And I said, Tanzania, that's where Kilimanjaro is. And I thought, what a great idea to see Africa. I can go there, I can climb it. So off I went. And Kilimanjaro is not technical, but it is high. It's 6,000 meters, you know, otherwise known as about uh, 19,000 feet. So it's, it's significant. And that's where I realized uh, the difference between mind and body. Because my mind was fit. I was fit. I was a runner in Johannesburg. And, and I felt great. And I'm 26 years old, of course. And you think you're 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 totally on top of everything. There's nothing that can take you down. And altitude for the first time was a big aha moment. And it was like, my God, my body is telling me something. And my brain is saying, just go. And my body is saying, no, thank you. We can't go. And I don't feel well. And you're not going to tell me otherwise. So that that was, again, an example of the ego saying, you can do it, buddy. You can do it. Just go, go. But having to listen to your body. And around that same time, I met people on the mountain who were talking about the seven summits. And I was on, what are the seven summits? Seven summits are the highest peaks on each of the seven continents on the planet. And so began a journey for me of uh, thinking about, wouldn't that be a great, great way to see the world, to do as many as I could. I'll never do Everest, but I'll do as many as I could. And let's see how it goes. And that began the journey. Um, and I started doing one at a time. And beginning the adventure, and boy, there were lots of adventures, seven continents with all the challenges and physical challenges, you know, that go with that. So it was, it was a wonderful adventure, but um, very scary along the way and, and lots of surprises. And then Everest was when I said I'd, I'd never do. That was for the that was for professional people and the good ones, you know, people who just knew what they were doing. And like an itch you can't scratch, I did six of them. Uh, and then I said to myself, is it me or is it the mountain? And I had a lot of experience at that point, but part of me was, again, holding back. And I remember speaking to somebody who was organizing an expedition to Everest. Um, I asked a thousand questions. They answered every one of them. The annoying thing about it was they answered every question really well. And I thought, this sounds as though it could be doable. And then I made the mistake of writing a big fat check to an expedition that was happening 18 months ahead. And that, the rest of history, I was committed. And uh, so began the journey for the, the final frontier, as it were, the seventh of the seventh. Seventh of seven. Yes. And uh, I would say that uh, you're possibly quite unique individual to have pushed yourself this far. And I think it's interesting because you're, you're working with leaders in business, but yet you also challenged yourself physically and mentally, because like you said, one thing's physical, but I, when I got into the second part of the book, I really felt that a lot of Everest was mental, um, along with the physical discipline. Uh, and people might not know why you said I'll never do Everest, but I figured it out. I think on page 70, when at 1am, a loud crack and sudden movement startled me from my sleep, a grounding sound, a grinding sound followed as if something had snapped and was tearing itself apart. Essentially, you figured out that the great, the glacier that you were camping on was slowly cracking and creaking and moving under you. Like part of Everest is a giant active glacier. Is that, am I right about that? Correct. It's a living, or Everest feels like a living organism. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, in one of those, uh, Lord of the Rings movies where, you know, uh, you know, the people lie down or they sit down on, on a, on a tree, a tree trunk 
and realize it's the foot of a giant. That 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 feeling of Everest of being on the glacier that is tearing itself as it slowly moves down the mountain about a meter a day, three and a half feet a day. Yeah. And every day on Everest is a feeling of a massive obstacle course of a mountain that's still growing. And think about that. It grows about two and a half inches a year. Um, oh, sorry, sorry, two and a half centimeters a year, about an inch a year. So that every year it's getting taller and taller. The Himalayas are young mountains and uh, everything about the height, the weather, the glaciers, it's drama and it's everything in your body is telling you, you really shouldn't be here. And, and yet you are here and you're trying to, you know, you know, reconcile that in your mind every day you're on the mountain because the, uh, the uncontrollables around you, weather, um, temperature, you know, uh, the mountain conditions, the glacier, um, people you're climbing with all of that you have to make peace with and coming from new york city where everything you know it's, everything works to a time and like new yorkers want to get things done and everything's on a schedule and people don't have time and new york second is a new york second to everest where time is irrelevant throw your watch away it doesn't matter so that was there was a lot of forgiveness i had to uh, I had to discover and find uh, and embrace and it was kind of a bath and forgiveness really for the two months on the mountain, because it is a two month expedition to climb Everest. Yes. That's interesting that you, you bring up the clock time that we've invented for, or sort of designated as important versus the flow of time and how, when you met the Sherpas and other guides from Nepal, uh, they seem to be much more kind of in flow with what was happening. And then you, you kept having to adjust when you were hiking how far you were hiking in different hours because of the sun and the way the storms were coming. And I think there's one thing about intellectually knowing things like you can read in a book about time and how to manage it and how to go with the flow and how to be in flow state. But there's a whole nother um, experience of basically bringing that knowledge into action, which is kind of how you gain wisdom. And I, I think it sounds like when you were up there from what I was um, reading, that you were gaining wisdom because you had to suffer through all of these things that, uh, you know, you might not have put yourself through if you were in Manhattan hanging out. And I've, and I've been to Manhattan many times. I have friends that live there and, and, you know, things are just go, go, go. And you can get food in a moment and you can ride a cab uptown or downtown. You can get on the subway. It's very much our linear time is important. I have reservations at 6.15, you know, and on, on Everest, it's like reservations, food. First of all, there's no service really there. We'll, we'll go to that. But, but just yeah. the idea that you're you're sitting there for two months trying to climb this mountain, you know, it's just, it's such an interesting... Uh, it was one, uh, one interesting perspective of the airport. So we got to the airport we're in Kathmandu, right? And we're right there for a few days and we're getting our permits and get, getting to meet the expedition members, right? So it's a a significant few days that we go to the airport because we get a flight from Kathmandu into the foothills of Everest, a place called Lukla, and it's in the mountains, but it's low down. Um, and I remember going to the airport. Uh, and we went to the airport and we saw this this this, this guy, the, the big door, and he was the guy to go to. And he had the he had the peaked cap, and we said to him, "That's great. What time is our flight?" And he looked and he scratched his chin and he said. Maybe this morning, could be this afternoon, hopefully this week. And that pretty much said it all. And and he wasn't joking either. And this is, you know, these are pl planes, there's no radar, you know, in this part of the world and in the Himalayas, the mountains are so tall, the pilots are communicating through radio what's the wind like? What was your flight like? I mean, it's, it's bizarre. It's flying by intuition for the most part. And uh, they're completely at peace with that. And here we are, a bunch of Westerners coming in thinking, what time? How about tomorrow? And we're trying to get it. Throw it out. It's irrelevant. Now, uh, we didn't go out that day. So we had to go back to our hotel, sleep a night, and we came back the next day and we get out the next day. So that was humbling. We hadn't even left Kathmandu. This was, this was for us, I mean, looking back, it was hilarious. It was a moment of, uh, we can't, if, we, if we don't let go, we're not getting on the plane. So uh, we, we let go early and we realized we had to let go every single day for the following 60, which was eye-opening. Definitely. And um, 
some of the things you faced on the mountain that I was that stuck out to me, uh, I kind of want to get your comment about this, um, was just how it brought out in you the need to be vulnerable and have a lot of humility when talking to people from the other different cultures and just within your own expedition, um, having to work together because of the intensity of it. Um, and I don't know if, if maybe you want to comment on that or anything like that. Yeah. In different parts of the world I climbed, it's interesting. So climbers in the West, whether it be North America or Europe, obviously very experienced and they go in and they kind of want to take control and, uh, you know, the local situation and tell the locals what, you know, what we need and, and the expedition and all that. And you, you get that feeling, uh, in Nepal, different ball game. You arrive, you meet the Sherpa, the Sherpa know that mountain, but also the Sherpa are at peace with themselves. Um, Buddhism is obviously uh, the origin, the origin, prime religion of the Sherpa, and it pervades everything. There are monasteries the whole way, all the way through the base camp. Um, you see an experience of, of people with people who live in poverty, you know, certainly some those higher places on the mountain, but incredibly happy. The widest of smiles, children playing with a stick and a dog because there's no electricity and they are having fun and they are family supporting each other um, just in very unique ways, very strong social connections with, between people and also how they respect the mountains. They respect the mountains, they, they, they worship the mountains, they believe the mountains have an energy and they honor that, they're humble about it. Um, so they're also extremely strong. So they're able to carry loads of, you know, 150% of their body weight uh, and overtake us on the trail, which is phenomenal. And they do that with a sense of purpose. They are doing that because they're carrying those loads. They're going to make, they're going to make a living for their families during the winter with no tourists. And they're doing that with a smile on their face. So we're, we're, we're starting on the trail and we're realizing that there's a, a very interesting partnership going on between the Sherpa people and us and we need each other. They need us and we absolutely need them. And I've never experienced that in other climbs in the world. I mean, the guys have been wonderful. Um, but here, the Sherpa people are the ones who really know. They're the ones who are in charge. And we do everything with them. And, and it felt like such a healthy relationship. And to learn from people and how they see the world and how they see each other and how they connect with each other and how they treat us. Um, it was... It was, it was um, yeah, you know, that was before we even got to base camp. We had this huge awakening of uh, how we you depend. We need, we need to depend on people in order to have any chance of succeeding. And you know that that sounds like a segue in my mind to ask you another question about in your executive world of coaching and and leadership how. It sounds difficult to teach this to the Western mind, um, how to be vulnerable and authentic. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm just going out on a limb here, but I do run a, a clinic. I'm the clinical director and I own a clinic and it's been a real, a lot of growth in the last five years with that. Very difficult compared to being a therapist and being a therapist, I thought was decently difficult, but, um, trying to find other like-minded people that own clinics and have similar leadership style is also very difficult. And I, and I, when I meet people that run other clinics, I, it's either we kind of bond immediately and I'm like, Oh my gosh, you have these great core values and I can see you trying to live your mission and you're honest and vulnerable and authentic. Or I just, I feel like I'm walking into a brick wall of ego or some sort of strange right. fantasy of, I don't know what, but it, it it just really irks me. So I'm like, how do you, Vivian, teach people with power and money how to be vulnerable and authenticity? Not that you have to share all your secrets. I'm just curious. It's, it seems like a cultural Yeah, I, I go for the ego straight away, Paul. So go for the low-hanging fruit. Look, everyone loves their ego to be stroked. And look, I'm saying this with a, with a smile. Um, you hear it in my voice. The first meeting that I meet with people... Um, I ask them, why are you here? What are your outcomes? And they'll tell me why they're here. And I say, that's great. What do you know about me? They'll say, well, I read a bio or they might know nothing about me. 
And I spend 10 minutes telling them my story, where I was born, one of five boys. I tell them about my family, my upbringing, what influenced me, my successes, my screw-ups, where I got it wrong, what was difficult, what was painful, what was really good. And I have so a little 10-minute segue. And then I turn and I say to them, tell me who you are. You've done well. You're, you're an executive vice president today. That's fantastic. Well done. I'm less interested in that. I'm way more interested in how you got to this position. I'm sure it wasn't easy. I'm sure you had to work for it. I'm sure you had to, you know, fall down a bunch of times in between. A story of grit and determination and character. That's who. I'll, that's what I want to know about you today. And it's funny when you when you give them that olive branch. Um, two things happen. Obviously. These people are very used to talking all the time about themselves and people ask them how you as a leader. But when you tap into who are you in order to become a leader, it's a different dimension that they're normally used to explaining. And I'll say, I'll go back and say, tell me your very first childhood memory. And they take a breath and because they don't get that question ever, um, perhaps. And they take a stab at it. And most times it's maybe about three years of age. Sometimes it's five years of age. And what I'm looking at, I'm looking at an executive man or woman, top of their game, alpha male, alpha female, perhaps. And when they're telling me that picture, they're telling me through the eyes of a five-year-old. And that disarms. And then we tell, tell me about you growing up. I told you about my mom and dad. What were your mom and dad like? They tell me their story. What was your house like? What was the ethos? What did your folks expect of you? Now, I live in an amazing country called America, where the American dream is living and breathing and well. And a lot of the folks I work with, they've done exceptionally well in their careers, but they didn't have a silver spoon or go to the best of everything. Some have, uh, but a lot of them came from very humble beginnings. And that's a story that they may rarely share with people, but they share with me and we'll peel that back and peel that back. And then you're in school, we like as a kid and schooling and parents and after school and choices. And why'd you make that choice? What'd you learn from that? I do it with wild curiosity, wild sense of openness, genuinely interested. And I'm watching them make this tapestry of their life. And they're telling the story, not to me, they're telling it to themselves. And we go through that. And only at the end of that, do I say to them, look, um, thanks for sharing you with me. And thanks for sharing you with you. You and I are here in an executive coaching program. So we do have to roll our sleeves up and get some outcomes here. You're an outcomes person. What do you want to get out of that? In a perfect world, you get a blank sheet of paper. You're, you're, you're somebody who's busy. I get that. You want, you want value here. What are we going to focus on? And what's interesting there is, they're going to, nine times out of 10, they're going to tap into that journey we've just covered for maybe 30, 40 minutes. They're going to tap into things that have awakened them. They'll go, you know what? I'm a little too hard in these situations, or I'm told I'm this, or I worry a lot about that. And I, if I could worry less, that would be a great thing. Or I'm in transition to a new job and it's my Everest and I don't know quite how to get there and I've never told anyone about it and I'm not going to tell anyone about it, but you feel safe and let's talk about it. So it opens up that Pandora, almost Aladdin's cave of, of opportunity because they're being themselves. And that is the kind of the core. If I can get that by showing that myself, I'd say, you know, nine, 95% of the time people are humble to share their story because no one ever asks them. I like that a lot. I think it uh, it reminds me a little bit about psychotherapy, except in your situation as a coach, you can pretty much say whatever you want because in psychotherapy, we sometimes try not to do too much self-disclosure because we're trying to make this space for people to come out of their shell of wherever they've been hurt because they're coming to you because they've been greatly hurt um, or are suffering in some way. So it's interesting to me how you, you already assume that they have these, I don't know, good intentions, like, and most people do, right? They have these good intentions and we, we want to see ourselves in a good light. And then it's interesting because in that can, when you share yourself and you share your vulnerability there, 
that that gives them maybe a green light to open up, but also to even reflect before you even start looking at all the things on the paper that they need to deal with. Maybe I need to think about this. Maybe I want to do that. So I really admire that. Yeah. See the net vulnerability. I have to be, I want to be vulnerable with them because I want to be myself. Mm -hmm. And if I'm vulnerable on myself, they will pick up that vulnerability as a strength. A lot of people think vulnerability is a weakness which is a disaster because they just shut down, they protect themselves and they stay in their cave. But if one exhibits vulnerability as a strength and the curiosity goes with that, most times that rapport you develop with somebody is reciprocated. And again, in this world, the book talks about vulnerability as a strength. If we could bridge, make that bridge and people could understand the power of vulnerability, to be oneself. I'm not talking about oversharing everything. No, no, no. We're talking about just being yourself for the audience you have and the way you want to communicate. It would be, uh, it, it would, it would reduce a huge amount of stress in the world today that, that people feel they have to hide or, or shield themselves. And most oftentimes it's, it's, you know, the overthinking, it's their own ghosts. Maybe it's their own past traumas, perhaps, of course, and those are very real to, to people. But I like to say before the trauma ha happened, you were you were yourself. You were unique. You were precious. And if we can get people to connect with that sense of their pure self, it's a, it's a wonderful place to be. And, um, and that's another way to open up these people who uh, are, are, you know, very accomplished and uh, get out of their own way, as it were. Yeah, I think that's quite a good summary of, of how to make vulnerability as a strength. And it is difficult because for so many years, I don't know how long, I'm just waxing poetic here, but growing up in the United States, I, I was basically taught that vulnerability was a weakness um, as a boy. No one said that directly, but that was in the movies, that was on the radio, and that is what happened on the playground. So essentially... Um, there's a whole movement of, I've, I've heard it called authentic masculinity or, and, and just authenticity in general about how to be yourself. And when you do that, we actually get to the point, right? There's often, there's a saying in Spanish that I can't remember how you say it, but it says, you're, you're, uh, I itch over here, but you're scratching me over there. It's like, you're, we're missing the point in the heart core of things. Um, and, and often in conversations and people feel so, I don't know, when they when when you leave a conversation that's completely superficial and you don't really get to the core of things people don't feel as well and one of the things i've noticed even just in my little clinic where we've been really working on this as clinicians together when we are able to share more of our story with each other as clinicians we feel so good like you leave that meeting you just feel uplifted right like i told somebody and maybe not like you said oversharing but just that i was worried about something and they're assuming because i run the place that I'm always confident and everything goes great and yeah. you know, all of that sort of thing. And then when they hear that, oh, I messed up something, you 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 made a mistake and you apologize. Well, yeah, I made a mistake. I'm not, I'm just a person. And they're, oh, oh I feel better. And let me tell you about my mistake, right? When we get there. So I, I love that you're doing that with leaders. And I I really admire that. I I really saw that throughout the book. This, this just everything that you talk about is so, I don't know, just what we need, I think, in business, I think, in business leaders. So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you're doing that. Yeah. If we could make it, if we, we could make it go viral, it would be a great thing. And I think the, the millennial generation, I think is a gift in many ways because leaders have to work harder to influence people. And I know millennials get a hard time <laughs> the demands, this, that, and the other, but when you think of it, um, to have to sell somebody of why you want to do something, means you have to be agile and you have to understand your audience and you have to work a little harder. Um, and that's a good thing. And you know what? With kids these days, people are doing it with their kids anyway. The kids are talking. I'm one, I, I didn't talk back to my dad when I was a kid. That wasn't allowed. But nowadays they do. So it's nothing more than is happening around us. So it's almost like this big wake-up call of, you know, engage with, 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 with people who work for you the same way you engage with your kids. 
trust me, it's easier and you'll get things done faster and you build followership. So it's not a secret sauce, but it's in front of us. We just need to let go in order to do that. And that's the piece about actually letting go. You got to be, you have to be aware in order to do that. Awareness is key. And uh, I think that's something I, I learned back when I was in college. I started learning about mindfulness and doing meditations and uh, things and yoga practices at my university. And I couldn't believe just in my own mind, because I, at that point, just understanding how to pay attention on purpose. I had never been taught that in my life. I was taught, read this book, learn about this history thing, do some math, play piano. I played instruments, sing, do this. I never was taught really, okay, take some time, contemplate what you're thinking about, what you want to do today. What's your intention? Breathe take a break. You're just a human. I never was taught that until I went to university and it wasn't even in the class. It was that sort of yoga thing that they had at our university. That was a free little thing. So it's interesting how that's kind of changing. I think it's changing the way we think. And I do think I've, I heard the millennials get a lot of bad rap because they've, you know, this is just the headlines you read. They've killed the napkin industry. They've, uh, they, they don't want to commute. I, and I'm thinking, I think this is, I, I, you know, I'm not, I don't care about napkins, but whatever. Like, I, I think this is a good thing that they're challenging and disrupting. And I've been, um, I'm about 40. So I'm just on the beginning cusp of that millennial. I didn't have a cell phone until I was 23. So I'm not really sure what I am, but essentially the millennials in my life have always challenged me big time. Like a lot of the people that work for me, right? you know, and I, it hit my blind spots and I say, oh my gosh, this is, I, I, this is the world I want to live in. I want to live in a world where we can be honest and vulnerable and we're not just hiding things behind language or we're hiding things. And I get it. Like there's a lot of reasons to be defensive. We've all been hurt by somebody if you've been alive long enough. And that hurt pattern, we call it, sometimes we call it trauma, sometimes just call it behavioral pattern, leads to uh, very interesting tactics to not be hurt again because that's what our nervous system doesn't want to die. And it, our nervous system doesn't really know much of the difference in the brain, if you go straight to the brain, of the difference between emotional pain, stress, and physical pain. It just wants to avoid that. It wants to get away from that. And so um, there's a lot of reasons people have the reactions they do. But I, I do think that it does take us pushing ourselves to feel pain intentionally or to, or to suffer or to take a risk intentionally to be able to get to the point where we can be comfortable with ourselves. And so I want to hear your comment on that, but throwing that back to the mountain that you climbed, Mount Everest, one of the, the last of the seven, you did have to intentionally put yourself in harm's way, uh, pretty close to death as far as I can see. Probably, probably the, you, you seem to face death, and you also faced during this a, a lot of negative internal thoughts and dialogue. Um, can you talk about either the mountain or, or maybe a little bit about what I was saying with the pushing yourself to go through something difficult on purpose? Absolutely. The one thing which is unique on Everest is your appreciation of breathing because there's only 40% of the oxygen uh, at the top. You only have 40% of the oxygen that you have at sea level. Uh, and as you're climbing up, you're at a, once you get to base camp, it's like, I don't know, uh, 16,000 feet, about 5,700 meters, you are already at a deficit and you feel that. And so you start to understand the value of oxygen, of air. You start to understand of your diaphragm, of how important it is to manage your breathing. And we think of meditation, we think of yoga. It's about breathing, but it's also about clearing our monkey minds. The monkey minds with a negative inner dialogue starts to work. So Everest is this almost this Petri dish of trauma um, where all these pressures are, are just coming down on you and you're having to process them or deny them. And if you deny them, you're consuming energy. And if you process them, then you're learning real time and it's difficult, but you're, you really are breaking new paradigms. You're going into unknown places, little scary, but when you open each door and realize there's no, there's no, there's no ghost standing on the other side of the door, it's just a door you walk through, but, the, but it's dark. And you walk in, you realize I'm okay. And almost every door you open up, I'm okay. So it's a, it, it breaks barriers. Just from my side to tell you about the story. So I was very fit. I'd done tall mountains before. I traveled around the world. 
I was confident in my abilities. I had a huge fear of heights. So that means I did not read up about, uh, I didn't want to watch a video about Everest, didn't want to watch any um, Discovery Channel documentaries, didn't want to read Into Thin Air, that famous book by John Krakauer. I just said, hunker down and you'll get through it one day at a time, Vivian. And of course, I got to Everest and I started encountering the obstacles. Uh, there were many of them. And every day your life would flash in front of your eyes at some point, sometimes multiple points. But at least at least one time every day you would go, if I don't do this right, we have a problem. And within that, the inner dialogue starts to launch because your body is saying to you, you shouldn't be here. This is dangerous. And you're trying to engage that negative inner dialogue. And there's two ways to engage it. Either, you know, um, you can either uh, try and counterbalance it or counteract it by saying, I'm good. I've done, ex- I've done this before. But then you might, may end up having two noises in your head, now, good angel, bad angel, which is exhausting. And meanwhile, think of on Everest, your breathing is limited. Everything's limited. Every, every kind of kilojoule of energy you are, are wasting is energy your body doesn't have. So you have to become really aware of efficiency. And a good way for me was to think of decoys. So when I was crossing the crevasses on these very flimsy aluminum ladders, uh, balancing with two pieces of twine, one on either side of me with a very dark hole below me, uh, terrifying, um, I thought of an anchor. And an anchor was a, a thought that would reduce my inner dialogue. And in my case, I lost my brother when when I was uh, much younger. He was 19. I was 23. And the moment I thought of him, I thought of somebody who was a higher, just somebody who was worth more than that nonsense, that dialogue in my in my mind. And and I found that, that was a really effective decoy, an anchor point for me. Um, and I remember continuing on the trail after that, higher and higher, you know, over the weeks, and really thinking about this inner dialogue, why do I allow it to come into my mind? Where's it coming from? What's it, what's its purpose? And I thought I did a decent job of it until I got to the South summit, as you may have read in the book. Uh, and it came back with a vengeance. So I did well, you know, to harness it or to, sorry, to, to, to kind of, to, to process it. Um, but the residue, the deepest roots were there. And that's where I faced myself, the South Summit. South Summit of Everest, you, you look over, you see Hillary step in front of you, highly technical, almost like a vertical wall of rock and snow and ice. And there's one rope and people are hanging on the side of the rope and swinging. It's incredibly dangerous. And it's, it's just before getting to the summit. And before Hillary step, there's a knife edge of about 150 feet, 50 meters. And I remember standing, just looking at that in front of me, and I remember my lungs just completely dilated. I just, it took my breath away, literally. And I hadn't been doing particularly well on, on summit day. And I felt already low energy. And I went into panic mode. Uh, our head guide, who had summited four times before, was leaning against a rock. His eyes were bulging, his ashen face. He said, I don't think I can do this this year. I'm not feeling good at all. And I remember just feeling, um, I went to a very dark place. And uh, I remember thinking, I don't have energy to go up, but I don't have energy to go down. And I am stuck here. And this, this will be my, my resting place. And I went to that very dark place. And um, I felt a incredible sense of sadness because that's not how I wanted to feel. And then this dark cloud, almost metaphorical dark cloud came over my head. And I felt this voice come from deep within me. Uh, and this voice was a totally unfamiliar voice, very deep tone. And it had a very simple message, a very simple question. It said, why are you here? And I I tried to shut it out. And then it came back even deeper. Why are you here? And I did not have an answer to that question. And then it came with, why are you always proving how strong you are, how smart you are? how accomplished you are, how good a son you are, brother you are, why are you here? And I, you know, whatever vestiges of energy I had completely evaporated. I remember getting extremely emotional and crying. I didn't know why I was there, Paul. I'm just about to summit the highest mountain on earth and I have no idea why I'm there. And I closed my eyes and I remember I could feel the, the tears 
freezing on my eyelids. And I just, and, and the biggest um, feeling I had at the time was, if I don't know why I'm here, what was my life? Because I'm going to sit down in this rock and I'll be here for, you know, for eternity. And I don't even know what my life is about. And I went to that really. And I, again, spent a couple of minutes there and very emotional and very dark. And then luckily I thought of my anchor. I thought of Paul, my brother, same name as you. It's a good name. And um, I saw a picture of him. I'm not, I'm not a religious man, uh, but I do believe in the power of the human spirit. And I saw him and it made me feel much better. And my, um, my negative inner dialogue evaporated, not completely, but let's say the volume was turned down, right? Um, and it almost gave me a chance. And I remember, I don't know how many minutes it was. I felt like it felt like ages, but it was probably only a few minutes. And I felt the tap on my shoulder of my Sherpa, a Gumba. And Gumba tapped me on the shoulder with a fairly strong tap. Uh, and I turned around and he said, we must go. And I said, I cannot go. I stay here. And he grabbed me, pulled my head over to his. And he said, we stay, we die. And I looked at him and I had nothing in my tank, nothing. And I said, can't go. And what he said to me was, he pulled me right up until I could see these massive almond eyes, this weather tanned face. I saw a man of wisdom and purpose. And he said to me, follow me. And I heard those words and I went into autopilot and he turned and I put where he put his left foot, I put my left foot, his right boot, my right boot. I followed him, went into robot mode and I don't remember how long it was for. I have no recollection of crossing the knife edge. I remember halfway up Hillary step, I came to and I go, bloody hell, he's taking me up. I thought he was taking me down. He's taking me up to the summit. Um, I, 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 I went back to one boot, another boot. That man, I believed everything, that man, everything. Nothing else was important. I gave my life, I entrusted my life with him. And that was my umbilical cord to something. I didn't know what it was when I followed him. He just said, follow me. He had strength. He had confidence. I had, I, I was weak. And 45 minutes later, we arrived at the summit. We could go no higher. And I was at the top of the earth. The voice was still there. Why are you here? But the volume was low. So I looked out at all the mountains below me on the highest point on the planet. Isn't that nice? And I remember thinking to myself, if I ever get down this mountain, because 80% of the accidents happen on the way down, I will tell a story about this mountain and I will be a different man. I will be a different person. And the other half is getting down. But, but that's what I felt like at the top. Probably not what most people expect. Um, but certainly a naked journey at the top. Yes. And yes, I like the way you tell stories. Very, very excellent storyteller. And I can see that the seriousness of this really just came through and how this has changed you. And I'm sure there's many ways it's changed you, but just going through something like this, completely uncomfortable to the point of facing death. And one of the things I read in here was that there's literally frozen dead bodies on the mountain that people haven't been able to retrieve. So you're, you're looking at it in the face and then you were able to go there and, and that bond between, you know, you and the Sherpa Goomba at that moment moved you. And I'm just curious, I guess, just to ask a little bit about, to bring it back to a little bit about what you do when you come down the mountain, you talked a little bit about that at the end of the book, how you were back in New York and, you know, everyone's upset about how much mustard was on their burger and whatever. <laughs> and, you know, you you just came up and 
you're like happy to eat oatmeal, you know, in a at 10,000 feet or whatever. So a little bit about maybe, maybe this isn't in the book, but when you look back at that, um, how, how are you different maybe as a person or as a coach uh, in your life now? Um, I value filling my lungs with air. I value, oddly enough, I value drinking water because I never, there's a finite amount of it. There's no water. Everything's snow and ice and has to be melted. So when I drink a glass of water. I think of how lucky I am to have water. It's just in, it's, it's ingrained in me from Everest. I appreciate a glass of water and lots of people on the planet would also appreciate the glass of water. Perhaps they don't, you know, they don't have it, but Everest taught me that. And the other thing, the, the peace of the mind, how, um, we have so much control over our thoughts, which feed our emotions. And if we can manage our thoughts, the emotions look after themselves and we have that ability to turn off that tap to let go and to be ourselves underneath any trauma experiences we have a sense of purity before that was impacted by people around us perhaps or situations but it's there and it's a precious it's a precious commodity thank you so much for sharing that and yeah just from talking to you i can see you know, how you have been so effective and why you are the president of your own company. I think it's your company. Is it your company? It is. It yeah. is. Yeah. I mean, because you're, you're trying to live what you preach. And I think that is a rarity. I think, interestingly, you said you're not a religious man. And I think that not, we're not going to get into that, but I think what people are seeking sometimes from religion is a way, you know, to do things and, and a how and, and some purpose. And when you find a, a, a person who attempts to live the knowledge that they've read or the knowledge that they've learned and they attempt to put it forward, I think there's, there's just a, a draw to that person. There's, there's something about that person because they're not trying to just sell you something right? They're not just trying to talk you into a timeshare. They're not, they're not just trying to give you some quote that they read in a, book somewhere. They're trying to give you what they've learned, what they've seen, and how you, a person who's maybe in your coaching or or somebody you know, how you can how you can tap into your special gift, how you can tap into your intuition and your purpose. Um, and so I, I really can see that uh from you and 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 the book just from knowing you in the short time. Um, I was curious about your, your, you, you had something in here about essentially how to leave a human legacy rather than just an endowment of money. And, and, and I feel like this book in a way could be part of your legacy, but I'm just curious about your, your thoughts about that because you're in a business world and oftentimes the business world can be at odds with some of the more simpler things in life. Um, you know, we're trying to get the most in capitalism. We're trying to get the most reward for the least amount, right? We're, we're always bartering that. And then it sometimes can run at odds with some of these things you've been talking about, like emotional maturity and vulnerability and authenticity and, and, and really, you know, the why to things uh, versus the how and the means. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit about legacy and, and some of the things that you find important. And it ties up, just to come back to your point a moment ago, you mentioned about, um, you know, religion, the greatest religions in the world all communicate the same thing. It's for us to be a better version of ourselves and they give valuable tools and a connection and engagement with people. So whether one, my journey, I think aligns very much with, 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 uh, you know, religion as well, because it is about trying to be a better person, whether you're following a framework, whether you're connected with that responsibility is still the same. And that, bleeds over into legacy because what i re realized on everest was if something happened to me on that mountain paul would they remember me for what i achieved or how i made them feel and what was very difficult for me to get my head around in terms of accept because i knew the answer very clearly on the mountain what i'd gone through particularly after summit day was they would remember me for how what i achieved they would say things like 
you know what? He died on Everest, but he did the six summits and he died climbing Mount Everest. And he built his business in New York and he left Ireland when he was 20. And he he did this and he went to business school here and he did that and he traveled. It was all these lists of stuff. But five minutes later, would they would there be anything, any way that I had made them feel that they would be incorporating into their lives to make their lives better? Probably not. And for me, it felt like such an empty husk of a, of a, you know, is that legacy? Is that I write a will? Uh, I leave a bunch of money, but but if you if you leave a legacy of move people, people remember you because how you made them feel. You have an opportunity to move the needle uh, with them, with others around them, to spread that and to have impact. And it, it really is about we're born alone. We're born obviously through our mother's womb. Then we're born. And then for, the, for our lives, we are alone unless we choose to be with people. So if we choose to be with people, and most of us want to be with people, if we, if we can enjoy that time and move people and allow ourselves to be moved, allow ourselves to be open and vulnerable so we can experience and we can enjoy. And perhaps we go back to childhood. And I think adulthood, we forget about the innocence of childhood, the wild curiosity we have as children, the beauty and the playfulness one business leader I really appreciate is a guy called Richard Branson. The guy makes it look easy. He's very smart. He knows what he does. He's got people who do all the things he's not good at. And he enjoys, he's playful and huge followership because he shows himself to be his, to be himself. There's an authenticity around a leader like that. Uh, now we're not just talking about leaders here today. We're talking about people, but we are all leaders. We're all leaders in some way, shape, or form of our community, of our families at various times. Um, so how we make people feel is legacy. And money is a nice part. It can allow things to happen. Um, but a connection is deeper than that and allows us to feel alive. And if we allowed ourselves to feel alive, we will go back to that feeling of feeling precious, the, the, the way we were born. That's a, a theory that I joined the dots on for myself um, after this big mountain. And I still feel real to me, at least. Yeah, I really like that theory. And, uh, you know, connecting to the psychology philosophy crew that listens to this podcast, oftentimes, you know, even in psychotherapy, part of the goal is to strip away all these negative stories somebody has told themselves and their and what they believe their identity is and finding out what was beneath that. And what's beneath that is the unique person you are. And if you can, if you can find a way and, and, you know, you're dealing with it, you know, totally different world, but if you can find a way to heal yourself, you know, in psychotherapy, through psychotherapy, then the way you move in the world, no matter what your job is or what your position is in life affects the people around you. And whether that be a large company or a person who's a janitor at a, a restaurant or a, a mother of children, that is what people remember. And whenever you, you talk to people about, when people tell stories, it's something that sticks in their mind, right? These little, and your story obviously sticks in my mind and you're, you know, climbing that mountain was such a huge thing for you that obviously that's going to stick in your mind. But when you meet people, random people, random, you know, about in your life, the people that really stick with you are, are just these people that I think that they, 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 they see the preciousness of life and they're, they're living it. I, I'll, I'll never forget when I was in, I think I was 19, I was visiting my grandparents in Texas and I took a Greyhound bus and I was kind of scared because I was like on my own and traveling in Texas where I had never been. And, uh, the, the driver of the Greyhound bus, let me sit up front, you know, cause he could tell I was a little scared and he was just, just a guy. And he told me, I, I, I never forget this. And I was saying, Oh, was in, I'm in college, you know, I'm going to college. And he said, Oh yeah, I never went to college, but uh, you know what I found is that life is the greatest teacher. And if you just listen to life, you're going to learn a lot, but make sure you take notes. As he, he said, make sure you take notes. And I thought that was just so such a genius thing, you know, and it's, it's stories like that, that sticks in my mind. Why does it stick in my mind? Because of how he made me feel. How many people have said that on YouTube? Take notes, think about what you're doing. It's, it's because he meant it. 
You know, he wasn't trying to sell me anything. He's driving the Greyhound bus to San Antonio or something. I don't know, but it's those things. And I think that what I hear you, what I hear from you is you're bringing people back to the point. Why are you here? What do you want with your life? What do you want to leave when you're, when you're gone? Do you want to leave a pile of money? Well, a lot of people do, but what do you want that money to do? What, What do you want? What, what impact did you have on the planet and people around you and, and your culture. So I really see that. And I really, you know, I really do hope that this book does make the rounds as it's actually just getting released here. Uh, I realized I was reading an advanced copy. Okay. So it's just getting released on March 8th, 2022. Um, so that's pretty cool. And, uh, yeah, this interview will be out probably in April. And, um, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. So, uh, as we're kind of wrapping up here, is there anything, you know, you, you've been, you know, this in the back of your mind, I wanted to say this and I didn't get to say it. it uh, uh, one thing, and it's, it's, it's to do with the book or whatever, but I did the audio book, which means I had to go to a studio oh. and that was really hard to do, to read your own book out loud. But it took me in an odd kind of way, Paul, it took me back to the mountain. So if somebody doesn't want to read the, the, the actual book, I mean, it's a, it's a very nice book and it's a hardcover and it's very nice. It's an ebook, but, but to listen to the audio, it's a different dimension. It's a different journey. So there's different ways to experience the journey as it were. Um, I was definitely humbling to, to read it and, and to figure that out. So. Yeah. It's, it sounds challenging to read your own work out yeah. loud and actually meet yeah. it and believe and, it. And one, one, uh, quote, you know, the, um, one of the my most famous people in the world, a guy called Robin Williams, as you know, that wonderful comedian, comedian with incredible empathy. And, you know, one of his, one of his lifelong phrases was, you know, something along of don't be tough on people. You've no idea what burdens they carry and everyone is carrying something everybody the curiosity is to peel the layer back and uh people want to be seen um and people want to be heard and they want to be valued when seeing it under the ego it's magic it's there and you know we have more way more power than we we think we have in engaging with that and uh it's a hell of a journey so yeah that's that's my 10 cents anyway from matt from dublin living the life in new york city so fantastic and uh i'm going to have all of your contact information where people might connect with you possibly on linkedin obviously the book will be on amazon and other online bookstores and i'm assuming audible will have the audiobook absolutely absolutely audible and i have a website it's www.vivianjamesrigney.com simple as that Okay, excellent. I'll put that in there as well. I think people are really going to enjoy connecting with you, especially after hearing you. And I do, the the audiobook sounds good. I mean, uh, it sounds like a whole, like you said, a whole nother journey. So I really appreciate your time. And it's been uh, my pleasure having you on The Intentional Clinician. My pleasure. And thanks for the great questions, Paul. Really great curiosity from your side. So thank you for that. Absolutely. My pleasure. Yeah. have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, please share with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. If you are looking for an EMDR, International Association Consultant, I am now an EMDR, International Association Consultant and can provide 20 hours needed to become EMDRIA certified. I have groups both online and in person, and I also do individual consultation as well. Check out the website, www.healthforlifegr.com, and send me an email that way, and or check out the show notes. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Counseling Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. 
And if you're anywhere else in the state of Michigan, you can work with those same clinicians online. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krause and his guest. And while these are based upon literature they have read and experience they have had in the field and other life experiences, the opinions expressed on this podcast should not be viewed as any sort of definitive opinion or judgment on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. Are you a young person of color feeling stressed out, down, or overwhelmed? Text the word Steve, that's S-T-E-V-E, to the number 741741, that's 741741, send a text, and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond to you. Did you know that you could support your local bookstore by shopping at bookshop.org? You can order online from the comfort of your own home while supporting a local bookstore near you. If you are a therapist or in mental health and you have not supported your local state organization, I would urge you to get involved immediately as policy changes happen at the state and federal government level. And if you are not at least helping your organization lobby, your practice could be affected. Some examples of this are the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association, the Arizona Counselors Association, the American Counseling Association, and the American Mental Health Counselors Association, to name a few. Until next time, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week. 